You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. For many, it was a little eerie. The sight of the United States $10 silver bill. Not because of who was on it. The recently deceased Vice President, Thomas Andrew Hendricks. He had been honored by many, though he served just a short nine months in office. That wasn't eerie. It was the shape of the frame around him. A square with an arched top so it looked like a tombstone. Issued a year after his death, it had been in the planning stages before that, which makes the whole story strange. Nonetheless, it was reissued in 1891, and then again in 1908 with the same frame. A nominal supporter of bimetallism, gold and silver money, he served under a president, Grover Cleveland, whose hard money stance and advocacy of the gold standard and the repeal of silver money bills just wouldn't jive with putting his image on the $10 bill when that bill was backed up with silver. And it's likely because of this that Hendricks is the only vice president who did not obtain the presidency who got his face on American money. That fact, and also that he died in office, and that he was there for the Civil War, and the Reconstruction, the second half of a disputed election ticket, all of this makes Thomas A. Hendricks worthy of study. If I was to make a movie about Thomas A. Hendricks, vice president under Grover Cleveland, I'd open with this scene. Pan the camera on a man speaking in front of the courthouse in Shelbyville, Indiana, the county seat, shaking his fists and spewing all sorts of indictive about the character of the congressman of the district. There is a crowd around him getting larger and increasingly stirred up by the rhetoric of his attacks and cheering him 
as he does. Simultaneously, we see that district's U.S. Congressman, Thomas A. Hendricks, giving a talk to a much smaller group many miles away. A friend gets his attention and whispers in his ear, Thomas, your opponent is attacking you at an unannounced rally, spreading lies. Thomas Hendricks says, there was no rally planned. No, there wasn't. They started handing out bills all over town with the most vile attacks on you and announced a sudden rally. And Thomas, it's the day before the election. Your last election was close, and there isn't time for the Democratic organization to put together a rally to counter this, not before the polls close. Then I will use their rally, Hendricks said. But it's not your people, Thomas. It's a Whig rally. I intend to speak. From a sketch of the life of Thomas A. Hendricks. The Whig candidate, John H. Bradley of Indianapolis, was a brilliant man of mature years and a speaker of rare power. He had not been nominated by a convention by the Whigs officially, but had announced himself as a candidate in response to a written request signed by three of his admirers in Indianapolis. The Whigs adopted him as their unquestioned choice, ran no other, but refrained from calling a convention in order that he might descend upon politicians and parties and pose as the people's nonpartisan candidate. He made a thorough canvas of Shelby County speaking at each of the 13 townships. So again, back to our movie, We'd see his opponent, John Bradley, speaking to the large crowd, stumping in the 19th century style. Politics are all he is. He's got no issues. Meanwhile, Hendricks gets done shaking hands in Flat Rock and mounts his horse. Hendricks has done no good for this district. He's merely a party tool, trading his votes for whatever he's told to do. We flash back to Hendricks, riding on his horse through Indiana's back roads to get to his hometown. Indiana needs improvements, better railroads, canals, and what do the politicians get us? Nothing. Who's the head of the politicians? Hendricks. We see a few wigs in the crowd in Shelbyville. We like this candidate. He fights. He's forceful. The courthouse is where people would go to hear political news. You do not have the internet. You know, you do have limited amount of newspapers and things like that. But you go to your local courthouse to see candidates and to hear political opinions. There would have been a variety of people, but mostly this was instigated by the Whigs to get a pro-Whig crowd for the supposedly nonpartisan candidate. Flashback to Hendricks riding, getting closer to Shelbyville. I am nonpartisan myself. I won't trade my interests to those of Franklin Pierce. He keeps speaking. And one of the good things for Hendricks is that John Bradley is a guy that can go for a long time with a long speech, actually just like Hendricks, as we'll learn later. That's going to serve him well as Hendricks is now on his horse, riding the miles back from Flat Rock to Shelbyville. 
A few in the crowd say, Well, I was favoring Hendricks, but now I'm not so sure. Men of Shelby County, vote your interests. We are free men here in Indiana. We see Hendricks now getting off his horse in Shelbyville, and friends of him, longtime friends, are saying, Thomas, did you really do all those things he said? Spend the public monies wastefully that way? Hendricks turned to them. I will speak to that shortly. Meanwhile, Bradley is hitting them, hitting him again and again. He's done nothing as a congressman. And then he spies Hendricks, the congressman, walking towards the crowd. Bradley is unfazed by seeing Hendricks. Aha! Someone has called me an abolitionist. And that person is a liar. As he says the words liar, he looks straight at Hendricks. Hendricks stares right back at him. Bradley goes on for a little bit and says, Gentlemen, you have the opportunity to change, and if you do, I will be your congressman. Throw out the politicians. And there's a large cheering for Bradley. Way to go, Bradley, one shouts in the crowd. We haven't had a candidate that fights like this in some time. Here's what the book says. Hendricks waited with the utmost patience and composure until Mr. Bradley had concluded and had sat down. And then, without hesitation, ascended to the steps of the platform. He made ready for his speech by removing his coat. He told his hearers to vote against him if, after hearing his reply, they were not convinced of the wisdom of his votes on the measures discussed. He took these up for consideration one at a time, stating each in case some explanatory fact, some important consideration that had been left out or concealed by Mr. Bradley. He talked about some internal improvements he didn't vote, but not the ones that he voted for that would help Indiana. Regarding the sneers about Hendricks receiving a nomination from a party, I am the unanimous nominee of the representatives of the Democratic Party, and that's many thousands of citizens here in Indiana. Mr. Bradley is the nominee of three people. That's right, three people. One, a respectful druggist. The other, a citizen little known. And the third, a gentleman of leisure on the streets of Indianapolis. Then he went through the arguments. Did you not approve of my vote on the Homestead Act? Here's why I voted for it. He'd go to another bill. Here's why I voted for it. And then say, does anyone now disapprove of my vote? Not a man made a rejoinder. You can just sense the crowd and they're rumbling a little bit. At first, they're very surprised to see Hendricks speaking. This is not what they expected, did not expect the debate today. Many of them came out to support the Whig and normally would vote for the Whig. But now, hearing the actual recipient of all the attacks speak, here's why I voted for it. Here's why I voted. Does anyone now disapprove of my vote? They're listening. Here's what the biography says. Bradley left the courthouse a beaten man, almost frantic with rage and disappointment. He mounted a store box on the street and vainly tried to rally his panic-stricken supporters with an incoherent rejoinder. The result was that the ordinary Democratic majority in the county was nearly doubled for Hendricks. 
in the story of Hendrix, it is a story of a political fighter in a state that went back and forth between the two major parties of the day. But what do we do with Thomas A. Hendricks? We will ask that question several times in this episode. He will make some of us, most of us, uncomfortable with his views, though they were not uncommon at all in his time. We revere Abraham Lincoln. Hendricks did everything he could in his home state to stop Lincoln from becoming president. his policies. He differed on the course of the Civil War, yet Lincoln himself commended Hendricks's fairness. And Hendricks took on copperheads who were opposed to funding the Civil War, wanted a hasty peace, while also opposing emancipation and opposing Lincoln's draft. Hendricks's views on race, outspoken against the 13th, outspoken against the 14th, outspoken against the 15th Amendments, and opposed them in the Senate, and believed people of his own skin color to be superior, though he confessed to not having met many African Americans. Yet Hendricks spoke out forcefully when know-nothings, anti-Catholic groups, anti-immigrant bigots attacked those Americans. Views that he could not seem to apply to racial issues. What to do then with Hendricks? Friend to political machines, supportive of the civil service, yet a defender of the spoil system for those jobs not covered in that service legislation. Served under a gold standard president, as we mentioned, with views that were mixed, but settling on an image of support for soft money. He spoke plainly on some issues such as an independent judiciary, the need for union, supporting the federal constitution, and the cause of Irish independence. But on so many others, he straddled, apologized, or changed his views, as he admitted on the draft and emancipation later that he had been wrong during the Civil War as a senator. His several revisions and votes for and against silver and gold standard money. His moderation of views on temperance. One bitter opponent said he was amazed Hendricks's record of 30 years of absolutely no accomplishment. Another called him the professional politician. Still another called him a trimmer, one who could take multiple sides of the same issue. Yet he was popular in his state, in Indiana. Being popular in Indiana was not nothing because it was one of the important swing states in the 19th century. That and New York, one of the reasons that Hendricks ran twice with New York governors at the top of the ticket. Indiana was called the mother of vice presidents by one of the other members of this club, Thomas Marshall, Colfax, Hendricks, Marshall, Fairbanks all come from the state and all come from the era where Indiana was a bellwether between Democrats and Republicans, switching all the time. And then you add even English and Kern, two VP candidates who tried to get the job, who got the slot on national tickets. 
Later, it had a little second rebirth as VP mother as a source of conservative foundation in national GOP tickets, simplifying the reasons, but kind of explaining Pence and Quayle. Only one president, Benjamin Harrison, was from, or really established in Indiana. He really was from Ohio, as was his grandfather, who was the military governor of Indiana, but originally from Virginia and lived in Ohio. Hendricks, born in 1819, back when William Henry Harrison was alive. He's also born in Ohio. When he's three, his family moves to Indiana to Shelbyville, and he's reared in a log cabin. He had a relative, Uncle William, who was a former governor of Indiana. And so he had a political name, and the family was not without money. He tells this story. When he was nine, he was in the square of the town, and he sees an unusual sight, a hickory pole topped by a hickory broom in the middle of the town. Brooms in these days tended to be made of wood splints rather than corn husks, so it's made of hickory. And when young Hendricks asks someone, he's told by the county clerk that the reason it's there is this was a symbol of General Andrew Jackson coming in, going to Washington, and sweeping out all that is wrong with the government. From that moment till his last days, Hendricks always considered himself right along with that hickory broom, a Democrat, a Jackson man. All the accounts of friends and even opponents say he was likable. He made long stump speeches. He memorized the Bible and Shakespeare. He was often the boss's favorite, a party stumper. That he joins the ranks of Gary, of Wilson, of Hobart, and Sherman, who died in the vice presidential office, brought grief and shock. But perhaps it shouldn't have been so surprising. By the time of the 1884 election that put Hendricks in the vice presidency, he had already suffered a stroke. And from years of stumping, often leaning on his right foot as he engaged the audience, his right foot became somewhat lame. He was 65. Not old in our era, but this is the 19th century. He was 18 years senior than the president that he served, Grover Cleveland. And actually, the ticket was almost reversed. It was almost Hendricks in the first place instead of the second. Hendricks had something going for him in Democratic Party politics in 1884 as that election approached. And he had Chester Arthur in the White House, but he wasn't going to be the candidate. It was probably going to be James Blaine that the Republicans were going to run, and he was beatable. Hendricks had a claim. He was part of the ticket of 1876. In that time, he ran in the ticket. It was Tilden Hendricks running against Hayes Wheeler. Now, you'll remember the 1876 election. Hilden Hendricks, the Democratic ticket, earned a popular vote majority of 200,000. Why? They had a popular issue going for it. Corruption in the Grant administration. And Hendricks was out there stumping on it. But later, in the Electoral College, the states of Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina switched from popular vote majorities for the Democrat to electoral votes being cast for the Republicans. And then the state of Oregon, which had voted Republican, but due to a technicality, an elector who was a federal office holder, the governor reported Democratic votes. The result was chaos and rival claims, and finally a settlement involving an electoral commission that, much to Thomas Hendricks' chagrin, settled for Rutherford B. Hayes. Thus, the first subject of our podcast series on vice presidents, William Wheeler, was seated in the office instead of Hendricks. And out of a job, nonetheless, Hendricks had credibility. As Democrats felt robbed, they called 
Rutherford B. Hayes, Rutherford B. Hayes, and they sought redemption in a close contest in 1880. Almost won. Now here they were in 1884. A lot of people are looking at Hendrix. Samuel Tilden, who had run in 1876 at the top of that ticket, is the great martyr within the Democratic Party. But he's in failing health. He's in such bad health that when he hears Hendrix might be interested in running again, there's a joke that goes around that Tilden says, yeah, of course, given the condition I'm in. We don't know if that's really the case. But this we do know. Tilden decides not to run, and there are a lot of eyes on that second part of the ticket then, Hendrix. It still screams martyr. But that's within the base of the Democratic Party now. And there was a figure that was not part of the 1876 battle. Hadn't even been in a national office at that time. He was the sheriff of Erie County. Grover Cleveland became governor of New York. Only two years in office was all the talk. Faced down the legislature and the political machines. Wasn't afraid of Tammany Hall. He was a Democrat who could pull Republicans if he ran on the civil service issue. On the issue of government jobs based on merit rather than patronage. Or at least a percentage of them. Even if he annoyed some patronage-loving Democrats. Even if in his own state, the Democrats in New York City weren't really fond of Grover Cleveland. He was all the talk. Hendricks was from Indiana. But he was friendly with Tammany Hall, the New York City Democratic Club. Bosses liked him. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. So you had this as the Democrats get to Chicago for their 1884 convention, this old battle of do we excite the base and try to build turnout? 
Or do we persuade independence with a candidate that can reach out, but maybe will not be as forceful on our issues? Boy, you thought that was only a modern construction. Now, this is absolutely the question facing the Democrats who hadn't been in power since before the Civil War. The last president they had was Buchanan, didn't do a great job. And now they can sense they might have a victory here in 1884. Cleveland can't win on the first ballot, and neither could Hendricks and other candidates as well. So there's a point at the convention and, you know, there are no primaries at this time. Everything happens at the convention and you have delegates who are pledged, but they're going to, as the first ballot turns into a second ballot, into a third, they're going to change their allegiance to other candidates and try to get the momentum. Everybody wants to be on the right side of a future president. The supporters of Hendricks, seeing that Cleveland couldn't win the first ballot, try to build something on the second. And at one key point, a delegate from Illinois switches to Hendricks, just as Hendricks appears at the convention in the door. His image, the great martyr of 1876. They hoped this would lead to momentum and other delegates would join and switch. Problem for the supporters of Hendricks, word had gotten out to the Cleveland folks, and they too had delegates from Missouri that could also switch, showing that the momentum cut both ways. And eventually, Cleveland overtook Hendricks. Cleveland's critical in winning New York. Hendricks in the top probably wouldn't have been a good idea. We could look at all that. The race was so close, even with Grover on the ticket. For the Indiana supporters of Hendricks, a consolation prize was offered to him. And yet again, he ran for the second spot. This time, there was no electoral commission. The race was close, but it was settled before the inauguration. Grover Cleveland president, he the vice president. His relationship with the person that he served under was not much different than most in the 19th century, despite Hendricks's stature. They quarreled a bit over patronage. Cleveland would make no appointments based on a politician's say. He meets with Hendricks only after the election, just a few times. And when Hendricks suggests that he has some folks in Indiana he'd like to get jobs, Cleveland says he'll have to investigate all of that. Not what Hendricks wanted to hear. Look, vice presidents at this time, we must remove ourselves from the image of the Veep nowadays, where the vice president is there besides the president signing legislation or gauging in important conferences and tasks, meeting with world leaders. The Veep came to the White House only if called on, only if the president sought his advice. And in the 19th century, it's kind of rare. Here's how Hendricks puts it to a reporter. I have not seen the president in four months, but I have no doubt when I meet him, it will be on the terms of the most cordial democratic fellowship. Here's a one biography says, in his childhood, Thomas A. Hendricks was the typical barefoot boy. He was a second child and was born in the log cabin home of his parents in Ohio. He was too young to remember the removal to Shelby County, Indiana in 1822, and his earliest recollections were of this new home and how dear it was, every memory of the home. From the discussions of public questions at the table and fireside by the family and their guests, he early became interested in the topics of the day, and even as a child adopted independent views. The courtroom and the post office were objects of special interest to him, and in visiting them, he learned much from his contact with businessmen and politicians. His father was a big supporter of internal improvements and oversaw a railroad that went through the town, bringing new opportunities to Indiana. The family were Presbyterians, and at 17, he went to a Presbyterian college in Indiana. 
studied law school in Pennsylvania. He was maybe not the most studious, but he loved to debate. As in all the old seminaries, oratorial exercises were a prominent feature of the work. He took pains to commit his speeches fully and to speak them in natural tones. In learning them, he often repeated them along the byways on his road to school. When he deemed himself unobserved, becoming absorbed in the declamation, he would sometimes forget that others might overhear him. It is related that one of his schoolfellows noticed him, reciting to himself and exclaimed, There goes that lunatic. Yes, interposed the father of the speaker, who chanced to hear the remark. And I wish you would grow to be a lunatic of the same kind. This from the life and public services of the Honorable Samuel J. Tilden, to which is added the sketch of the life of the Honorable Thomas A. Hendricks. He entered with an honest zeal into every case of law which engaged his attention, and never slighted any detail, however seemingly unimportant. He was a dangerous opponent. It has often been said in speaking of Mr. Hendricks and his early success as a lawyer that while many of his rivals were more apt to win their cases before a jury, he invariably carried his point with a judge. Hendricks established a law practice and was sought out for the Indiana General Assembly. He worked on education and other issues. Served there only two years. It may not have fulfilled his interest. What did interest him more is when he was sent by his county to the Indiana State Constitutional Convention of 1850. There, he was very influential. For his work on the Constitution, he was well regarded, and he'll use this to get to Congress. In his first election for Congress, he stumps, he does anything he can, reasonably and ethically, to get votes, including, in one case, log rolling. Here's a story. A local incident of the canvas represents Mr. Hendricks as a log roller, in the very literal sense of the term, and is related as follows. Through the central district, the back counties were in the backwoods. The northern part of Hamilton and all of Tipton County were new. Journeying one day to fill an appointment in a neighborhood yet several miles distance, he alighted from his horse to help a man who was doing the hard work of rolling logs. He was trying to accomplish the task, always difficult for one, of putting the third log on top of the two lying together. But with assistance from Mr. Hendricks, it was easily executed. Mr. Hendricks, without explanation to his purpose, mounted and proceeded. So he didn't, like, help the guy with the logs and then say, hey, by the way, I'm running for Congress. That was at a point in Hamilton County. He was to speak that day in New Lancaster in Tipton County. He's addressing now a meeting at Boxley Town in Hamilton County. The exercises concluded. A gentleman came forward and asked Mr. Hendricks, did you assist a van rolling logs at the day before yesterday? Yes, I believe I did, Hendricks said. Well, that settles it. We allowed that it was you. The man who was neighborly enough to give that character of assistance and so polite as to conceal the fact of his candidacy upon such occasion is our man for Congress. That was my son-in-law you helped, and he and another son-in-law, my son and myself, are Whigs. But we have determined to vote for you. The returns from that precinct showed that Mr. Hendricks received four Whig votes. While his discourse may have aroused the Democrats, by log-rolling, he acquired the votes of the Whigs.
as a congressman, he attaches himself to Stephen Douglas, the Democrat future presidential candidate, supporter of so-called squatter sovereignty, which Hendricks also supports. And Hendricks will be a yay vote for the Kansas-Nebraska Act. He both supports the Homestead Act, so we're going to provide land to settlers. And that was opposed by a lot of Southerners, supported by Easterners. But he's also for Kansas-Nebraska, which says those settlers have the right to determine if they are a slave or free state. He was taking on the so-called fusionists in his in his state. And there were people that sometimes disagreed, Whigs, know-nothings, some anti-slavery Democrats, who combined together to oppose him. And after two terms in Congress, he will lose his seat. He took on Republicans. He also took on know-nothings. Had no interest in their attacks on Catholics and immigrants, someone who is naturalized or someone that was born in America, exactly the same, according to Hendricks. And we should clarify that in his support for Kansas, Nebraska, and the so-called squatter sovereignty or the idea that settlers would decide if they were free or slave, he, like Stephen Douglas, it should be noted, defended that to the hilt, meaning that even when there were attempts to just kind of turn that into a proxy for making new slave states, which James Buchanan with the Lecompton Constitution, where there was a fraudulent vote and fraudulent constitution presented to the federal government that did not reflect the opinions of the majority of settlers in any kind of accepted vote. Hendricks, just like Douglas, opposed it, even at the expense of angering the president and a fellow Democrat, James Buchanan. This is a problem for Hendricks because Hendricks has been appointed by Franklin Pierce as a Western land commissioner. During his dispute, he has to resign his position and it's given to an Indianan that is more supportive of Buchanan. But overall, Indianans like his stance and they nominate him for governor. So his star is rising in 1859 as Lincoln is starting to be talked about for president and Hendricks will end up on a ticket for governor that is opposed to the ticket running Lincoln for president in 1860. He loses. But the support for the Lincoln administration in Indiana is somewhat short-lived. By 1862, Hendricks is leading the Democratic State Convention and setting the Democratic Party position on issues. He's opposed to the draft. He's opposed to emancipation even though he'd reversed these positions in 20 years, but then felt strongly about it. He also takes views in this state convention that can't be seen as any other way than racist, clearly states that, in his view, the white race is superior. His party is going to win the 1862 legislative elections. Republicans will still hold the governorship in Indiana, but politics there are bitter and divisive. Republicans accuse Democrats of only winning because Republicans are fighting in the war. But he also quarrels with his own Democrats in Indiana who are so-called copperheads or peace Democrats. He wants no part of that faction, does not call for any end to the Civil War, supports funding of the Union effort, but is opposed to emancipation and the draft. He also opposes the 13th Amendment. He will be elected to the U.S. Senate by the Democratic Legislature of Indiana. This is where the two will... Differ on politics, but Lincoln says, Hendricks, you've always been fair towards this administration, even though we have different politics. 
He's also developing his views on money. And during the Civil War, in order to fund it, the federal government is producing greenbacks. And this, Hendricks opposes. He takes a Jacksonian view of banks. He associates greenbacks with this, paper money with this. He thinks that Lincoln is taking on way too much debt. But it is interesting, because later, in 1868, when he's a senator, with his eye on an Indiana governorship, he votes to repeal a bill that would contract greenbacks, the bill that would constrict those the Civil War issuance of those greenbacks. And just like with many issues, people might forget your first stances and remember your most recent one, and that's kind of what happens with Hendricks. He earns a reputation as a soft money supporter. The other position that he takes in the U.S. Senate are not ones that look so great to modern eyes, nor should they. He opposes federal civil rights bills. He believes the federal government has no right to tell anyone who should go to school. Congress, upon any pretense, may prescribe who shall be admitted to the schools. May it not? On the same pretense, go further and prescribe the terms and regulate the treatment of the scholars in the school and do whatever may be desired to preserve a supposed equality. And the pretense under which Congress compels admission to hotels and of places of amusement will go further and regulate the treatment after being admitted. For equality may require that too. This will be a usurpation to regulate the most interesting and delicate of our domestic affairs. There is no such power. Our constitutional amendments do not confer it. Our common schools in their control and management should be kept as near to the families as possible. I mean, this is a very common position. You hear a lot, Hendricks says this a lot, that African Americans and white Americans are friends, and only the intervention of the North, only the laws, only the federal government imposing its will is breaking them. He also opposed all of the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th banning slavery, the 14th calling for equal protection under the laws, and the 15th saying that specifically that no one can be denied the vote based on race. He opposes all of these changes and amendments, any emancipation efforts. What Hendricks's position is, I'm not, he says, against emancipation per se, if states do it. Or even if the Union, once it's fully constituted, decides to do this, meaning when the southern states are back in the Union, let's have this vote. Let's not do amendments while we're at war, while things are strange, while it's not the normal politics. Um, And that's just to fairly represent his view and the view of many people at the time. But suffice it to say that if Hendricks got his way, probably most of those amendments wouldn't have been able to be passed based on future behavior. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance, wherever you get your podcasts. Those amendments and much other legislation, things like the Freedmen's Bureau, the Reconstruction Acts, the Ku Klux Bill, could only be passed with Southern states out of the Union and those that were in being Reconstruction governments. He takes another stand. Hendricks is in the Senate when Andrew Johnson is up for impeachment. 
and he makes a forceful speech and votes nay for impeachment, nay to convict. Of course, in doing that, it's no surprise every other Democrat in the chamber does as well. In 1876, Hendricks lets it be known that he will accept nothing but the presidency if he runs. But Samuel Tilden of New York proved too powerful, too potentially successful, potentially electable as a candidate. Being a popular New York governor had taken on Boss Tweed in his ring. Samuel Tilden wins the nomination and friends of Hendricks, party regulars, bigwigs in Indiana say, look, you need to do a favor for the party and take the second ticket. And as we discussed, that ticket goes down in election history in America because of the electoral dispute. In that dispute, there's a difference between Tilden and Hendricks. Hendricks thinks that Tilden should have fought a lot more, shouldn't just allowed Rutherford B. Hayes or to get into the presidency by accepting the electoral commission that Republicans could probably manipulate. Republicans had the Senate and the White House, Democrats had the House. Hendricks said that Tilden should have at least insisted that the matter go to the Supreme Court. What do we do with Thomas B. Hendricks, right? I mean, what's the point of learning about these figures? There's right now a debate, even in Indiana, whether his statue should remain in Indianapolis. I won't weigh in on that. It's not the purpose of learning about the person that was vice president. Statues are, are made of metal. But they are things that exist in our time, and it's up for it's up to people in that locality and in this time to decide if they still want a statue. All we can do, I believe, by studying someone like a Hendricks is to understand that if you think the politics of the past were simple, that there was simply like, oh, Lincoln and the good people, you know, on this side against all the bad people, they weren't that simple. You had a lot of factions in politics. And what you get with Hendricks is a kind of Western continuously votes to fund the war, even to increase funding for the Civil War, but also hints in a speech that before he's a senator, that if New England can't handle this war and can't beat the South, it might be up to Indiana to join with other Western states and form their own Western Confederacy. Now, sometimes in in history and opponents at the time would bring Hendricks' statement up as disloyal, but when you look at the, the exact statement he makes... What he's saying is, no, this is if the Union loses the war, then Indiana is going to have to do what it has to do and form its own confederacy to protect its own interest against the South. Hendricks saw himself posed to extremism and for the Constitution and um, just as much against Yankee radicalism as he was against the Southern fire eaters. Very similar to kind of a Stephen Douglas type position. And, you know, in studying him, we see the gradations of politics, which are important for understanding the Civil War period. I want to present a speech of Hendricks just to kind of give you an idea. We've said, made it clear that his positions, you know, in modern times would not fit well. You're against the 15th Amendment, Amendment, which means you're against African-Americans voting at the time, um, even after we've emancipated everyone. There's a distinction that he draws about the 15th Amendment, the reason that he's against it. And I feel the need to at least represent his position fairly. He thinks that the reason this amendment is passed is because newly enfranchised voters will provide support for carpetbaggers coming from the North to the South. Here's what he says. There is a deliberate purpose on the part of adventurers from the North, a class of men who were described as carpetbaggers, 
to appropriate the entire African-American vote of the South to their cause. What's their cause? It's not your cause. It's not their cause, referring to African-Americans. It is the cause of plunder. And are you, men of the South, willing that these adventurers shall appropriate that large vote in some of the southern states or majority of the entire vote? And of course, he's speaking to an audience with Southerners. They say to Hendricks, no, there's shouts of no. And one says, not if we can help it. Hendricks says, how can we help it? His speech switches slightly, and Hendricks has a message for those of the South. It is a question simply of personal influence between you men of the South to the manor born, those who have settled here on the one side, and these haphazard adventurers of the North on the other side. That is the way the question stands. New relations have come to exist between you and the people of color in the South. I'm modernizing his term. They've not been of your seeking. In many cases, not even been sought, he says, by the people who are gaining this new right to vote. But nonetheless, they are voters. He's a voter in Indiana, as he will be in Indiana and everywhere else. The traveler to the mountain pass is not wise when he overtakes the storm to be casting his eyes back upon the plain which he has left. It is his business to consider the dangers which menace him at the time and to save himself from the threatened peril. How can you do it? He's talking to the men of the South. These new relations are upon you, how you are to conduct yourselves moving forward towards persons of color. They were your friends. They were social relations. They had your confidence and you had theirs. Is it possible that a stranger can come in and make these ancient servants of yours his servants and your enemies? The altered condition of things have been forced upon you, not by persons of color, but by ambitious politicians. North and South, okay. So he's going to now make his point, Hendricks. I hope to see Southern men taking this weapon which is placed in their hands and using it for their country's good. You have no cause to entertain prejudices against people. Someone shouts, we don't do it. When your young men were far off in the field and your aged men, many of them were absent. You left these men in your homes and they stood sentinels at the doors. I mean, I think in some cases, yes. In many cases, they ran away or joined the Union Army, but... It's not what Hendricks clearly wants to mention. Essentially, what Hendricks is saying is, if you assure them that you will give them just laws, fairly administered, do this, and the outside adventurer cannot turn the persons of color against you. So he state, you know, so this is way the way one way to see Hendricks that he's. I don't want to say he's exactly in the middle, because he's clearly more for the Reconstruction era on uh, the more conservative side, the more anti-change side. But he is making a point that, guys, don't mess this up. You know, he, he has words for the South. Don't mess this up. You have your chance. Treat people well. And the if you accept that argument in good faith, it could have uh, been explained to Hendricks near the time of his death, or if he was still alive thereafter, that that never happened. They didn't live up to their side of the bargain across the former Confederate states once Redeemer governments took control. But yet his view is a viewpoint at the time and helps to at least inform what people were thinking. People in northern but western states, people even in northern states, were thinking. As Indiana governor, he supported some temperance efforts, but also wanted the state to realize revenue from alcohol sales and to allow at least have the localities to decide. Here's what he says. Sales should not be made to boys, and if necessary to prevent it, the boy who misrepresents or conceals his age to obtain liquor should be punished. 
as well as the party who knowingly sells to him. Drunkenness should not be permitted, permitted as well as selling to the intoxicated. All sales should be forbidden when the public peace or safety requires it, and like other pursuits, it should be suspended in the nighttime. Perhaps the hour now fixed is unnecessarily and inconveniently early, but society should be protected from the disturbances and bloodshed in incident to the traffic in the middle of the night. And plus, Hendricks adds, it should be considered where a difference in regulation could not safely be made for the sale of vine and malt liquors and the stronger and intoxicating drinks. There is certainly a great difference in the evils that result from their use. He's straddling across the many great political issues of his century. Well, that's what we do in Indiana. Not only did Cleveland and Hendricks not get along exactly and Cleveland didn't consult Hendricks, and that would make him not too different from other VPs. There was a little bit more hostility than you would normally get. Hendricks is quoted in the press um, saying about a New York gubernatorial election where an opponent of Grover Cleveland is elected to fill that seat, David Hill, that day, actual Democrat has been elected with all that entails. And um, it just showed that He was for the faction that would say, you know, to the party goes the spoils. A senator who knew him explained that he didn't have respect for politicians who want to linger in the shade and slumber while he and the boys, the party workers, had borne the heat and the dust and the burden of battle. Suggested that those people who did the battle should be getting the rewards. But Grover Cleveland wanted to institute more civil service reform, not only in the legislation, that's something many Democrats supported, but he also wanted to implement reform in his actions as president. In other words, not throw out all the Republicans just because a Democrat had been elected. Hendricks is among those figures. He at one time says, this is not a Democratic control of the government. This is not a Democratic administration. It's a Grover Cleveland one. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens with Thomas Hendricks as vice president and with the party situation. Republicans control the Senate. Grover Cleveland is a Democrat. Democrats don't want party control to switch. They want to make sure that at least the presiding over the Senate is done by a Democrat. So Thomas Hendricks, even though he's 65, his health isn't great, and a lot of other vice presidents would leave often. You know, we talked about uh, Tompkins who was barely ever there. Richard Benson, Mentor Johnson was another one who goes back home to Kentucky. This was very common uh, among 19th century vice presidents. Hendricks can't do it. He has to be there at the gavel. It was time consuming and it was work. In September, 1885, Hendricks leaves Washington to attend the 35th anniversary of the Indiana Constitutional Convention. There's only some surviving members and he also wants to rest. His plan is to get back to Kong, to the Senate in December. He won't make it. He dies in his sleep, November 25th, 1885. Hendricks' contribution to the government of the United States continues after his death. Not only is he printed on the money, but the fact of his death and the party structure where you had no vice president, 
and Grover Cleveland, though young, was not a man in excellent health. The Presidential Succession Act of 1792 calls for the next person in line after the vice president to be the speaker pro temp. That would have been a Republican. The Republicans controlled the Senate. And so, by the death of a president, parties would have switched. That got everyone working, and to their credit, Republicans as well, a few Republicans, most notably George Hoare of Massachusetts, worked on legislation to change the presidential succession so that it would go from the vice president to the secretary of state, keeping the succession within the administration. It was actually moved back to Congress during the Truman administration. There's something else that happens after his death that changes politics a bit. It removed the possibility that Hendricks could be a candidate against Cleveland, which, although he told everyone he had no interest in running in 88, one of his last speeches is for a cause that brought a lot of attention, and that is the cause of Irish independence. At this time, the whole of Ireland was still controlled by Britain, and they did not yet have home rule. For Hendricks, this lack of democracy in Ireland is a problem, and even though he's the Vice President of the United States, he must speak out about it. Here, as I said, in Indiana, about the same size with Ireland, differing not more in extent than half of Marion County with a population not more than half as large as Ireland, we here would allow no man to speak of taking from us the right and power of local self-government. We recognize the right and power of the general government, but what affects you and me and the people of Indiana with us is that Indiana makes her own laws. The mission of the men to be sent from Ireland to Parliament is to have for Ireland what we Indianans enjoy, to claim the right to make our own laws simply because we can regulate our own affairs better than anyone else can regulate them for us. So Irishmen on their own soil, for that simple reason, must be legislators for Ireland. No question can arise between landlord and tenant in Indiana that's not regulated by our legislature. So Ireland must have local self-government. Who in Indiana would trust any other state for the legislation for her schools, for the building up of her industries? Let us come back to the great question which lies at the foundation of government. You remember where we stood 100 years back. You remember, in the Declaration of Independence, we asserted the right of men to govern themselves. This is the great foundation idea of America, and it is now being applied in Ireland, a cause to which you are to give your sympathy and support, the right of man to govern himself, and to abolish laws that are inimical to his welfare. So popular is this speech that Hendricks makes for this cause and the outspokenness of the nation's number two executive official that a local political boss in Boston changes the name of his club to the Hendricks Club. I want to thank you for listening. This is the Vice President of the United States podcast. Um, Please subscribe to us on iTunes. We have more vice presidents coming up. And also my main podcast is My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com.
www.thinkdigital.com.